0: of elementary age kids or below, we'd love to be a part of what we have going on with our Vine Kids program. Also, if you have um, fifth, sixth, seventh grade-ish kids, we have a great opportunity for them out in our four-year kind of gospel age appropriate stuff going on for each of those groups. We'd love for you um, to be a part of those. So I mentioned um, during the analysis that we're taking a small diversion uh, for about three weeks. We do this every year about this time, we pause and we kind of reflect on, well, we really reorient ourselves and we reflect on what we want to do in 2018 or who we believe that God is calling us to be as a church. And uh, for a lot of you, you'll know that this is a really important time in the year for us. Uh, uh, Coming up like November 21st, our little community is... Getting older, we're like six years old, kind of. And uh, for some of you that have been coming for a long time, that means a lot. For some of you that are here for the first time or or have come just a couple of times, it doesn't mean as much. But in any regard, it's a really important time of the year because it's it's a real reminder of God's faithfulness to us. It's a God. It's a reminder that God is a a God that when we trust Him, He provides and leads and does this incredible thing that only God can do. And so it's a really important time in our life, and we pause and we think and we talk about how we can be a church that God is calling us to be, right? Because we're inundated as a culture with definitions of church and what that looks like and who we're supposed to be and what other churches are doing and trying to live in a place where, you know, we're fighting for the same places of real estate in a city that's got 1,668 churches in the metro, right? Oklahoma City. And we deeply just want to be authentic to who God is calling us to be. In the midst of that incredible kind of number of churches, we want to be authentic. And we're constantly asking ourselves, God, how do we become the church that you want us to be? Not how do we look like the church down the street, or how do we do this, or how do we compete for each other's Christians, right? So that we can take the disenchanted Christians from other churches and put them here and say, hey, look, we're growing. Um, We're not interested in that at all. We want to say, God, what are you doing and how do we become the church that you are calling us to be in. So it takes some time to, to really step back and think about that. And, and we do that really with this idea in mind. And each time around this year, I kind of say very similar things. But I have one particular goal that I desire for us as we dream and think about the future and what that means and how we give our whole lives and hearts and resources to the Lord. And that is, I want to create a culture here at the Vine Community Church that is built on biblically based, generous living that gives away our hearts and our lives, and our resources, right? And I'm not saying that we're not that already. This church is incredibly generous with its life and time, but I want to create that as our culture. Like, I want to have a church that is culturally generous with its things, its stuff, its resources, its time. Like, we are just giving things away to people. And I'm not talking about purely, like, money and resources. I'm talking about our time and our lives. Like, we give people the space in our lives that matters to us. Like there's no greater value that we can show someone than giving them part of your life and time. And I want to be a church that's made up of people that say, you get that part of me. Like that's that important to us. So I want to create that culture. And so each year around this time, we begin to ask, what kind of church, God, do you, are you calling us to be? Are we stepping into those truths, those vision points? How do we become reckless in giving our lives away as a church? How do we continue To push ourselves. So this year, we're looking at a little three-part series over the next kind of three weeks. We're looking in the book of Philippians, and we're going to talk about this idea of more than enough. And the reason I've carved it out that way is because I want to come to a place in my life personally. And a lot of, I've told you this before, but a lot of times what I preach about on Sunday morning, in fact, almost always, is just a reflection of whatever God is doing in my heart. It's really nothing more than that. It's not like I'm exegeting great texts and I've got a whole bunch of great stuff to share with you that I've kind of, it's just what God is doing in me. And so you just sort of get that regurgitation. And I want to be a person, right, who in the middle of my life with no matter what's going on or whatever the circumstances are, can say, Jesus, you are more than enough for me. Like if everything else disappears, if everything falls apart, if life feels as unstable as it's ever been, Jesus, you are more than enough for me. That's my lifelong goal, to be able to fall to a place where, or actually achieve a place where that is my reality. And I long for that for myself, and I long for that as a church, and I really long for that for you as well that we'd reach a place where we just said, in the midst of everything. If I never hit whatever it is I thought I would want to be or do, or if I never achieve all those things that I thought I have, or if I never acquire all the things that I wanted to acquire, or if everything is stripped away from me at every point in time, Jesus, you are more than enough for me. I need none of that. And so this little series is really going to be <clears throat> exploring that as we become or try and become a church that lives and built around that principle. Jesus, you are more Than enough for me. And we do that by living biblically generous, by saying these things that you've laid in my life, and I'll talk about this a little bit more in a minute, they belong to you and therefore I get to give them away. My time, my life, my heart, and my resources. Now I know those of you that are here for the very first time are going, really? I mean, this dude is going to talk about money. I guarantee that's what he's getting ready to do. I drove by this church 10 times, thought it was a liquor store, finally pulled in. And that dude is talking about Every time I go to a new church, I talk about money. It's a conspiracy. And here's what I'm going to tell you. It is a conspiracy. No. Um, you're just lucky, right? You're just lucky. We're not really actually talking about money. We're really more talking about our hearts. But the resources and our finances are a big part of that, right? Because the truth is, is that the Bible talks about it a lot. of all Jesus' words in the New Testament are tied to resources or money or or giving our things away, right? There's 800 collective verses in the Old New Testament where God is instructing us about being stewards of his creation and giving our stuff away. 11 of Jesus' parables are about money. Why? Because the reality is, is that it's a huge part of our life and it either seizes us or we seize it. Either we worship our wealth or we worship with our wealth, and Jesus is very intentional about that. And to make it even more personal, right, I've been married 20 years, 20 years. I know what you're thinking. What, did he get married when he was like six? No, he's 20 (laughs) years. And I promise you, and I'm not not exaggerating, that 99% of every fight, every argument, every issue, every struggle, every tension, in our marriage, can be traced back to something to do with financial. Whether it's how we spend it, how we don't spend it, how we don't have it, how we need to get it, what we're missing, what we long for. You can track all that down. Insecurities, fears, failures, all of those things in our marriage. I promise you, you can track back somewhere to that. Because the truth is, is that all of us have got trust issues with the Lord when it comes to our financial life, when it comes to our resources and our things. And Jesus addresses it a lot. But let me give you a quick word about money because here is an absolute truth. This church does not want your money. We just don't. The reality is that I believe that God will provide for us with or without you. I am not concerned whether or not you're going to up your tithe by $5 a month or 10 or 100 or even 100,000. I really don't care. I believe with all of my being that God will provide for us, right? What this church desires is for you to surrender your heart to Christ, that you would have an encounter with Jesus Christ and it would change you and you would begin to see your life differently based on one single principle. And it's a single principle that I have taught on probably a thousand times if you've been coming over the past six years. You have heard me say it time and time and time again. And that this principle is this, that my life and my things belong to the Lord. If you and I could grasp that truth, that my life and everything I have belongs to Jesus, it would revolutionize the way that you think and live. Because no longer is God trying to pry my stuff away from me, right? Because we have this fear that God is trying to pry our resources away from us. But no longer is God trying to pry those things. They belong to him anyway. And I have the privilege, the overwhelming, joyful privilege to give my stuff and my life away. That my car, my house, my marriage, my children, my things, even my time in my day belongs to the Lord and it is his to do with what he wants. If we truly could grasp that principle, it would change everything. What you'd realize is that we don't want your money. What we want is for you to meet Jesus and have that revolutionize your life and have you believe that your life and stuff belong to him. And I don't care if you take that principle and stay here, go to another church, Move across the country because I believe that principle changes lives and it will change the people around you. And it's an incredible tool to share the gospel when you can look at your life and say, This all belongs to Jesus. Like, I trust Him with it. I trust Him with my marriage. I trust Him with my kids. I trust Him when times are good and when they're bad. I trust Him that what He gave me, He's faithful with. I trust Him that this will be enough, that He promises to sustain me, that He'll make it work because He's God. Jesus, I trust you. Those words are incredibly powerful and they're incredibly hard to say. And so part of what we're going to be looking at is this idea of saying, Jesus, do I really believe those principles? That my life and my stuff belong to you, that you are more than enough for me. So this whole thing that we're doing over the next three weeks really is not about trying to to make sure that you give us enough money. I mean, hey, look, You know, our big givers are all our first three rows, right? So congratulations. (laughs) Kind of up your tide this year. (laughs) The reality is, is that this community is built on people that have authentically decided to give their lives away, right? It's not about resources. It's about saying this church is worth my time. And so I'll come up here on a Saturday and I'll clean the toilets or I'll work with the kids or I'll open my house to a life group. Like that is what we are talking about. Jesus, you get my life. Everything I have is yours. And that's the way the gospel community looked in the New Testament. It looked in a way that said, this stuff belongs to the Lord anyway. So if there's needs, here, take what's mine. It's not mine. It all belongs to the Lord. And if we ever got to a place where that was what defined us, it would would change. It would change the world. Well, this morning, we're going to begin this process by looking at the idea of contentment. And, And this section of Philippians is a really powerful piece of text. And those of you that have been with us, we actually taught through this, or I taught through Philippians in 2000. 14 and a little bit forever, Um, and we look at this idea of contentment because it's really powerful. Because in our English language, our understanding of contentment has this idea of, I'm just going to have to be satisfied with what I've got. It has an idea of settling in it, right? So when you use the word content, it means I kind of want more, but I'm not going to get it, so I'm just going to kind of be okay with this. That's how we use that term. But biblically speaking, contentment actually has this idea of peaceful satisfaction tied to, tied to it. That when I'm content, I have a peaceful satisfaction with where my life is. And not satisfied as in settling, but satisfied as in I'm full. Like when you're really satisfied, you think about that word, it means that you are, you are full. And the idea of biblical contentment is that I have a peaceful satisfaction with where my life is. And what we're going to learn this morning is that God wants us to live in a place of peaceful satisfaction. And those two terms don't define any of our lives. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Philippians chapter 4. and We're going to explore this idea of contentment and what God is actually calling us to and the challenge that it truly is. And then three weeks from now, we're going to pick back up in, in John and keep, keep kind of going. But we're going to explore different pieces of these 10 verses over the next three weeks. And we're going to look at the first four um, today. So if you've got that Bible, open it up. If not, uh, you can look on with your neighbor. Just slide over a little closer to him. And uh, let's pray together, and then we'll dive into this stuff. Lord, I am grateful for this community. I'm grateful, Lord, that when I think about biblical and generous living, I'm overwhelmed by the way that this church lives and acts and breathes and does life. Um, I'm overwhelmed that you've been so faithful for six plus years. I'm overwhelmed, God, that people would even want to walk on this journey with us. I'm overwhelmed at your faithfulness and your goodness. And God, I am completely underwhelmed at myself. I don't trust you. I've got fear issues. I have all kinds of stuff, and yet your grace... Is so incredible. And I know that a lot of us sitting in here feel that same thing, God, that that we're we're fearful. We're untrusting. We worry. We have anxiety. We're not sure where ends are going to meet or if you can pull us out of this or if I'm ever going to feel something again. God help us trust you. Remind us of the great ways that you've moved. Remind us that you are a God that provides and protects and prevails. And show us this morning, Lord, what it means to be peacefully satisfied in you. To just take that breath and say, Jesus, I don't know what happens, but you are enough for me. Teach us what gospel contentment looks like. Take a moment in your own heart as we prepare to open God's word and just ask him to teach your heart this morning. Just something simple or whatever you need to hear, just ask the Lord to teach you. Take a moment and pray for your neighbor. Maybe you know their name, maybe you don't. Maybe you've never seen them, maybe you're here for the first time. We like to be a community that prays for each other. Just in your heart, just whisper that God would show himself to them this morning. Lord, we turn our time over to you. We ask you to teach us, to reveal truth to us. We ask you to speak to us through your word. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and we do not take that lightly. And so, God, speak to us this morning through words that you have breathed onto this page. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So for those of you that are familiar with the book of Philippians... um, a lot of Paul's, actually a lot of the New Testament letters in general, were really written to address very specific problems that were happening in the church. They were really written to address heresies, Gnosticism or, you know, the Judaizers or false teacher, all kinds of stuff. And, and But Philippians was really written because Paul loved that church. He loved the church in Philippi. He had this incredibly special relationship with them. And he actually writes this letter while under house arrest in Rome, waiting to stand trial before Nero. And he knows that this is coming to the end of his life, and he's writing them this letter, and he sends them this incredible encouragement. And the Philippians had this same kind of love for Paul. They cared deeply about him. And, and Paul's going to make a mention of something in chapter 10 where he's very grateful for their outpouring and showing of Um, support because they love him so much. They actually send a guy by the name of Epaphroditus all the way to Rome from Philippi, all the way to Rome to bring Paul some gifts. And we don't know what they are, but they bring him some gifts. Maybe it was financially, maybe it wasn't, but they brought him something. And Paul is really grateful. And if you remember the Philippians and the church in Philippi was really, really struggling. They were incredibly poor, I mean to the point where people were dying of famine. There had been a civil war that had ravaged the land, and they were also under extreme persecution, which means they were living in a place where if you claimed out loud that you followed Jesus, you could be arrested or killed, right? That's the reality of your daily life. Add that and couple that with poverty. Couple that with the fact that your land had been ravaged by a civil war, and all of a sudden the outlook that you have on life is incredibly bleak right? The Philippians of all people had reason to go, well, this is just crummy, right? Like life is really hard, yet they pool their resources because they love Paul and they send these gifts to Paul. Most likely because he was under house arrest, they probably sent money or stuff, but a lot of times they would just send supplies. So when we were in Uganda in 2000 forever ago, We went and did a bunch of ministry in in these jails, and we would do ministry, and we would preach and teach, but the jail system in Uganda was really different because when you go to jail, you don't get things. Like here in America, if you go to jail, right, all of your needs are covered. You have a cell and a bathroom and blankets and sheets and food and bowls and all that kind of stuff, beds. In Uganda, you go to jail and you go to jail, and what you start with is nothing, Like you don't get a bowl for food, you don't get a straw mat to lay on, you don't get anything. The only way you get stuff is if you have people on the outside that love you enough and are willing to bring it to you. So when we went in and preached in these these jails, we would take with us straw mats, plastic bowls, cups, like supplies and things, and we would give them to the inmates because they had nothing. And so Paul's under house arrest in Rome, very different situation. He's renting his house, but he needs, he has needs and he needs them taken care of. And so the Philippians send him resources, right, money or stuff or things so that Paul can continue to wait on his trial before the emperor. This is what he says, and we're going to go just through these verse 10 through 14. He says this, I rejoice greatly in the Lord for that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So Paul says... I'm grateful that you've been able to now show your concern for me. I know that you were always concerned for me, but you had no way to show it, right? So Paul goes, I know your circumstances and situations have made it really difficult for you to show how much you care for me with the trials that I'm going through because you are going through incredibly hard trials yourself. But I'm thankful that you were able to do it. In other words, thank you for sending Epaphroditus with the gifts. I know that you've always been concerned, but there hasn't been a way to show it And yet you found a way, and I want you to know how deeply grateful I am for that. But I also want you to know, Paul's saying, that I don't need it. Like, I don't have to have it in order to find contentment in my life, right? That's kind of what he's telling them. Like, I'm super grateful. Thank you, and thank you for showing that. But I want you to know that I'm okay with what I've got and with where I am. Paul's going to use these verses to talk about this idea of gospel contentment. the first thing that we see in there is this, that God wants you to be content. And when I'm talking about content, again, I'm talking about peaceful satisfaction with your life and where you are. That I have come to a place where I am peacefully full. Peacefully full with where I am. This is what God desires for you. The problem is that the majority of us live in a constant state of wanting more. In fact, I would venture to say that 99%, if not more, of us live in a constant place of wanting more. More money, more things, raise, better job, a husband, a better husband, whatever it is, right? (laughs) We live in a constant place, this sort of perpetual longing of if I could just do this, then this will be what this better, or this way. We live this way. We live in a peaceful dissatisfaction with our lives. It's not that we hate our lives. It's just that we're dissatisfied. We're not full. We look at them and we say, if I could just get another little bit and cover this piece of debt, or if I could just save up this much, then I could retire. If I could just find that partner, right? My, my soulmate, then I could get married and then my life would be full. We live in this constant state of perpetually wanting more. If I could just have children, if I could just give one of ours back, right? We live in this constant state, state of perpetual longing. And it's disillusionment. Because we think that by adding those things, somehow that's going to lead to satisfaction or being full. As if the answer is having more or that next thing. But you know this as well as I do. The next thing just gives way to what? The next thing. Right? For all of my life, the next thing has always just given way to whatever is next. God desires that you would live in peaceful satisfaction, peaceful fullness with where you are at that moment. It doesn't mean that God's not going to give you more, bless you more, your life's not going to grow, your 401k's not going to get bigger. It doesn't mean any of that. What it means is that this exact breath-drawing moment, right now, whether that was then, whether that's there, whether it's here, at that breath-drawing moment, God has a deep desire for you to be peacefully satisfied in him. Not in a perpetual state of longing. Now, that does not mean that you can't desire other things. Hey, I'm working on school, I'm gonna finish this, I'm gonna go to med school, I'm gonna get a job, I'm gonna do these things. It does not mean we don't desire to move forward, to have goals. What it means, though, is in the middle of my life, even with all those goals, I am deeply satisfied with where I am. Which means, God, if you take it all away, right where I sit, you are enough for me. This is what God longs for us. He doesn't long for you not to have. God longs for you to have enough in Him. At that moment, at this moment, right now, at every breath that you draw in your life, that you could come to a place where you would say, here, God, you are enough. Here, God, you are enough. And if God moves forward or backwards in this timeline of kind of following him, right? Because there are steps forward and there are steps backward. At each of those moments, we'd still be able to come to a place where we could say, I'm peacefully content. I'm peacefully satisfied. God desires this from you. He does not desire that you live in a state of perpetual longing. Whatever that thing is you're desperately dying for, right? And I'm not talking about just material, just that Whatever you think that'll be, whatever, however much money that'll be to f- make you feel a little more comfortable, or whatever you think those things are, it will never be enough. Ever. Right? Because until Jesus is enough, it will always leave you restless. God desires for you to be peacefully content. That's what Paul's saying. He's going, I want you to know, right, that I'm not saying this because I need. I don't have any needs. For I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. So the cool thing about this, the first thing is we know that God wants us to be content. The cool, second thing and the cool thing is that being content is, is something that we have to learn. It's not innate to the Christian experience. What that means is that when I surrender my life to Jesus, I don't know, all of a sudden become content in Jesus. Like, "Whoa, I don't need anything anymore. Everything's great now. Paul says, look, I don't need the stuff that you sent me, but I'm very grateful for it. and I'm grateful for you and I love you, but I don't need it. You want to know why? Because I have learned to be content. And I find this incredibly encouraging because contentment is learned. It's part of the sanctification process of growing in Jesus. Like it is learned, which means if you're living right now in a state of restlessness, it's okay. Because part of following Christ is learning in this moment, in this breath, how to be okay with him. It's how to trust him and say, God, I want to exchange, right, what I think I need for you. I want to learn how in this breath to put this down and say, I don't have to have this to be joyful. What I need is you and Jesus. I need you to teach me how to do that because right now I am petrified to let go of this and trust you. Satisfaction, contentment, being full of Jesus is learned. And Paul says, I have learned it. Now there's two types of contentment. There's gospel contentment, which is a contentment that says what we've been talking about. I am content with Jesus. He is more than enough for me. I am fully satisfied in him at every breath and every moment of my life. Like that contentment fills me even if everything else goes away. Gospel contentment. There's also circumstantial contentment. Circumstantial contentment says I am satisfied because my circumstances, right? have told me that I'm satisfied. And of course, the problem with circumstantial contentment is that it comes and goes. Most of us don't know that we need gospel contentment because our circumstantial contentment is clouding our view. You see what I'm saying? Like a lot of times we don't know the need we have for Jesus because the circumstances in our life have never had us actually have to rely on Jesus. Most of us in this room will never, and I say never, have to wonder where our next meal will come from most of you in this room will not wonder tonight if you will have a home you will not wonder tonight if you will eat you will not wonder tonight what happens when everything gets stripped away most of us are relatively enamored with our circumstantial contentment now that doesn't mean we don't want more but it just means that I've got a family and we've got two cars and we have a house and although it may not be all I want My circumstances tell me that life's okay. The problem with circumstantial commitment is that it's a lie because we're finding our peaceful rest in those things, and those things disappear. And oftentimes the reality is God removes those things to show us our need for him. And God does it in kindness, not to be mean and not to be awful, but to show us how desperately we need him oftentimes our circumstantial commitment gets removed to expose our need for gospel contentment. And a lot of times we see that and we think that God is like punishing us. Why does this keep happening to me? But God in his loving kindness is saying, I want you to need me. I want you to see that I am enough for you, that I will sustain you and protect you and fill you and give you everything you need and all those other things in light of me, don't matter. For some of us, the relationships, for some of us, it's financial, for some of us, it, just security, for some of us, it, it's identity, it's what we look like, it's whatever, it's what we thought we could bank on. When that's gone, we're left going, Jesus, are you enough? Because we've exchanged circumstantial commitment for true gospel commitment, contentment. And it's why Jesus says it's really hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he says it's almost impossible. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why does Jesus say things like that? Because our circumstantial contentment has displaced our deep feeling like we have a need for a gospel contentment. Because I'm, well, I'm okay. And things are okay. And I've got all this safety and all this stuff and all this built up. And until those pieces start to crumble... We don't really realize our deep need. And so God, in his beautiful, amazing, loving kindness, don't mistake that for anything else, at times begins to remove those. And he always does it at the most inopportune time. When everything seems to be falling apart, God will remove one more piece. Or at the times when we think we were just stable enough, God will show us how instable our lives really are because he loves us and he wants us to see that those things will never last, right? They cannot be exchanged for true gospel contentment. I say all that only because I want you to understand that when we find hope or joy or stability in anything other than Jesus, it'll fail you. At some point in time, whether it's today or whether it's 10 years from now, those things will fail you. If they're people, they will fail you. If they're resources, they will disappear right? If they're pieces to the puzzle, they'll fall away. The only thing that satisfies, truly peacefully satisfies this gospel contentment, which says, Jesus, you are more than enough for me. And Paul says, you got to learn it. Which means it's a constant daily decision to say, Jesus, today I'm going to wake up and I'm going to believe that you are all that I need. and I'm going to exchange my desire to prop up my ego I'm going to exchange my desire to fluff up my pride. I'm going to exchange my desire to tell myself a bunch of lies that the world tells me. That if I just have this, then everything will be better. If I just get that, it'll be better. If we just do, th- I'm going to I'm gonna push all that to the side. I'm going to say, Jesus, I just want you. Show me the flaws in that. Like, I want to learn that. Paul says, I have learned the secret to being content. Now, here's what's really cool. There is actually an answer. A lot of times the Bible just throws things out there. But Paul says there is an answer. I have learned the secret to being content. Listen to what he says. In any and every situation, whether well-fed, whether living in plenty or want, verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. A lot of your versions may say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. <clears throat> Most of you know this verse, Philippians four thirteen. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because you've seen it on every Hallmark card, we're on every poster hanging in your dentist's office, right? My dentist on the ceiling when I was growing up had a poster that when you lean back, it was a cat hanging from a little ledge, and it said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? And I thought, I'm not real sure that's what that means. But don't, you got your hands on mouths so and I not say anything out loud. Philippians 4.13 does not mean you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You have to read Scripture in context. It does not mean that me, a 20-something-year-old guy, married 20 years, can call Michael Phelps and be like, hey, 100-meter fly, I got you, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It means if we have a sinking contest, I'm going to smoke him, right? Because I will sink like a stone, Right? It does not mean that you can bench press 400 pounds, that all of a sudden you're going to learn to break dance. Like the truth is, the verse applies to contentment. Paul says, You want to know what I've learned? You want to know how I've learned to be gospelly content in my life? Because in any situation, whether well fed, whether hungry, whatever it is, here's what I have learned, and here is the secret I can do it. Through Christ, because he is my strength. You can be content because Jesus is enough for you. And Paul says, I learned that he's my strength. No, I can't do this on my own. I'm starving. I have nothing. I've been shipwrecked, beaten. I've been abandoned. I've been flogged. All the things that Paul's gone through. He's learned to be gospel content. Jesus, you are more than enough for me. Why? Not because I can do it, but because you're my strength. You can't do it. You cannot achieve gospel contentment because you will yourself to just going, I'm going to be happy. Paul says, the secret to contentment is that Jesus gives me strength. This is mind-blowing because a lot of us think that the secret to biblical living is that somehow that we pick ourselves up from our bootstraps, we pray a little more, we read a little more, we go to a few more church services, and we just get happy and it's garbage. What Paul says is that I've learned that when I've been hungry and that when I've been well-fed, the secret is the same. I've learned that when I've lived in plenty and when I've been in want, the secret is the same. I can do anything, right? In other words, I can survive even when times are good because Jesus is my strength. It doesn't mean that I give Jesus away when times are fine, just like what most of us do, right? Right? We only really pray when we're in desperate need. We only read to go to the Bible and we don't know what to do next. When times are fine, money's coming in and life's good, and we're holding hands with our husband or wife every day and things feel fine, we never really in those moments say, Jesus, I need you, because my circumstantial contentment has exchanged my need for gospel contentment. And then when the pieces get removed and we come clamoring back saying, Jesus, where are you? Paul says, in the middle of both set, sets of circumstances, plenty and want, the secret's the same. Jesus strengthens me like he's the reason he's the reason I stay gospelly content when I have and he's the reason when I stay I stay gospelly content when I don't have I don't know where you are in your life right now whether you're living in disillusionment and discontentment or whether things are okay but the truth is in both of those scenarios the secret is that Jesus is your strength and we've got to be praying constantly that God would exchange our circumstantial contentment for gospel contentment, and that we can, and that you can do it, because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That means you can survive today, right? Not on your own power, not because you're going to will yourself up or pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but because the God of the universe, the God that breathed life into your lungs, the God that you surrendered your life to, who said, you no longer live, but I live in you, is what Paul says. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That Jesus is all that you need, and you can do it because he will do it in you and through you. Whatever you're facing today, right? I'm not going to give you the American evangelical kind of dream that says, hey, victory is yours. Just claim it. The truth is it's not. You're not going to do anything, but Jesus in you can do everything, and you can draw breath, And you can be satisfied and you can find joy because Jesus is alive in you. And that's what Paul says the secret to contentment is. Secret to contentment is believing that the God of the universe can strengthen you. So this morning, what I want us to understand as a church is that I want to be at a place where we are living in this sort of gospel contentment. Like, I want to be peacefully satisfied, like full whether I have plenty or want, whether it's a great season or a really trying season, I want to be at a place where I just say, Jesus, you are more than enough. If collectively as a body, we came to that truth, that reality that Jesus, you are more than enough for our church, then money and resources and stuff, like who cares, right? We have Jesus and we can do all things through him because he is our strength this church doesn't want a nickel of yours. What it wants is for you to trust Jesus and believe that he's more than enough for you, period. Don't believe a lie. Exchange that circumstantial contentment for gospel contentment and live in that truth. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning and open your word. And Lord, spend real time examining real, true text. Lord, the, the, the reality is that most of us want more. We long for more. And I'm, I'm not talking financially, God. We just want more. We're just, as Americans, we're just always one thing away from being happy. And it's just sad. And so, God, I pray that what we would do this morning is we'd come to grips with the reality that you promise us that you are more than enough than we could ever need. And not in that sort of depravity kind of way, but in the way that says you fill us, you satisfy. Now Paul says that the secret to being satisfied and full and content in a season of drought and in a season of plenty is that you are our strength. God, we don't have to do this alone. You don't have to navigate and fight whatever fight you've got right now. You don't have to do battle in your heart with whatever you're doing battle with alone. The God of the universe strengthens you and promises to do so and that has to be learned. You have to remember and fight for that because contentment is learned. It's not innate. You're not the only one that doesn't get it. You have to fight for that truth to say, Jesus, I want to believe this. Jesus, show me. Jesus, teach me. Because today I'm going to trust you. Just for one day. And then I'm going to draw a breath tomorrow and I'm going to say, Jesus, today I'm going to trust you just for one day. And the next day I'm going to draw a breath and I'm going to say, Jesus, I trust you just for one day because you are my strength. You desire for us to live in satisfaction and contentment. We have to learn that. And the secret to that is that you are enough. You are strength. So Lord, as we close our time in worship, I pray that you would wreck our hearts if you need to, that you would reorient our hearts, that you would push us personally and as a community, God, to begin to think differently. What if we truly believed as a community that you were more than enough for us, that we didn't need to be like everybody else or like anything else, but just be authentically who you're calling us to be and be satisfied in that, Lord. It'd be incredible. So Lord, hear our cries, we close our time in worship. Hear the echoes of our heart, those of us in here that are dealing with fears and failures. Lord, let those be real. Be the satisfier of our soul. And we ask this in Jesus, holy and perfect and precious.